election officials are wildly impartial. We we care so much about getting it done and getting it done right. And we don't have the appetite nor the time, frankly, to try to mess with stuff and try to tilt the tilt the scales. You're entering the voting booth. I'm John Fortier of AEI. And I'm Don Palmer with the Election Assistance Commission. Welcome to the podcast that looks at the inner workings of elections. Well, our guest today as we enter the voting booth is Ricky Hatch. He is a Weber County, Utah clerk on the auditor. Uh, it's, a, it's with a population of about 265,000 voters. Ricky is uh, Ricky Hatch has a long history with local election official organizations. He's a leader in the community. Um, just to give you an example, uh, besides being the clerk and auditor of, of Weber County, uh, he is the election officials division director with IGO, which is a National Association of Government Officials. He's also with NACO, which is the National Association of Counties. He actually serves on our our advisory board at the Election Assistance Commission in the leadership role, and he was the 2015 Clerk of the Year. So you can see that he is a leader and a uh, one of the top performers of election administrators in the country. What do you get as a, as Clerk of the Year? What's the award for that? I think it's more duties. Yeah. Is usually what <laughs> what happens. Which would include being the legislative affairs uh, head, which is now yeah. your, your current duty. Oh. Yeah, that's a that's a blood pressure uh, shot right there. <laughs> well, wel- welcome, Ricky. Um, one of the things is with all these duties um, and sort of organizations that you're part of, people do really talk to you about where the minds of local election officials are, what's on their mind, what are their concerns as we enter 2024, and we want you to share that with us as we also prepare for 2024. What What is on the minds of local election officials? Uh, the biggest thing is, is the unknown effect of misinformation. Um, we, we saw a lot of challenges with uh, around misinformation that stemmed out of 2020, um, and maybe not even misinformation, but incomplete information, and uh, how uh, people and voters and uh, advocacy groups will will leech on or grab onto something that aligns with their belief, without really vetting vetting the the true background and the, and getting into the details and. The concern is something like that will just take off. Um, what is it? Mark Twain said a lie will go around the world, halfway around the world before truth puts its shoes on. Mm. Um, and uh, I, that's really what we're worried about is we're worried about um, or, or what I'm hearing is just worry about how do you help educate the voters so that if they see something that just looks like it's horrid and horrible, they'll at least think about it and maybe go to their local election official or or do a little bit more research before spreading it. You know, if I could jump in, I was going to ask you a question, and you've led right into it, and, and that is, I know that you know in 2023, there are people asking all sorts of questions and doubting elections more than ever, and you're often called upon to sort of quell those doubts and, and answer those questions and, and, and explain to people the process. So what are people worried about? What are the big things people are coming to you and saying, well, I'm, I don't trust the process, I'm worried, and what do you tell them? <laughs> It, it changes almost uh, probably every th- three to six months. The the worry changes. It you know it used to be when two thousand mules came out, it was ballot harvesting and it was uh, drop boxes. 
Um, and before that, it was voting machines. And before that, it was dead people voting. And, and it just kind of rotates around. Um, so what I tell them is, first off, elections in America are highly decentralized. We have about 10,000 voting jurisdictions. Um, and so to, to really crack in and, and make a difference, you're, you're going to have to really focus on some of the larger ones. Um, but the other thing is they're run by people who care and they're run by the people that you go to church with or that play, uh, you play rec softball with or things like that. It, it's your neighbors that help run these elections. And these elections are set up, um, you know, obviously it depends on the state, but they're set up with multiple layers of control. It's a very public process, uh, the election administration is. And there are so many different layers of control to help prevent certain things that that have been and are continually refined to to make them even more secure. Uh, and every state has them. You know, some states really focus heavily on security, others uh, less on security and more on transparency. But in the end, you've got a, a multiple uh, layer system of elections uh of ballot processing, vote processing, just to make sure that it's transparent, it's accessible, it's secure, and it's accurate. And they have there are a myriad of ways to do that. And generally, your election jurisdiction is going to take advantage of all all different things: audits, transparency requirements, noticing requirements, um, uh, reconciliations. Just there's just a whole layer of that, which. If we've got another hour, I'd love to talk more about the uh, all of those levels of controls. Well, I, I would love to delve into two things that you mentioned, yeah. uh, two of the conspiracies in a way. One, one about voting machines, and, and you have a role with the EAC, and the EAC has some some role as to developing standards for testing voting machines. But um, what would you say to people about the security of voting machines? What what's done? To voting machines that vets them, that gets them ready for voting, that would make them feel secure uh, that that these are going to be the types of machines that are going to perform what they're supposed to do in elections and not be corrupted or not be influenced from the outside. What would you tell the average person? That's a great question. And really, the EAC is kind of a key player in this. Most voting machines throughout the country, before they can accept a single vote, they have to be certified. Some states have their own certification process, but many states rely on the EAC certification process. And the EAC is a bipartisan federal agency. It's a governmental agency that has worked with NIST uh, to come up with uh, standards that if you're going to use a piece of equipment to count a vote, it's got to meet certain standards. And they're not easy to meet. It takes between, I think, six and 18 months to get a system certified. And I know in Utah, we just we can't use equipment that's not certified by the EAC. Um, and that test that tests is a whole variety of things. Uh, security, it'll test vibration and humidity and heat and uh, as well as your accuracy. Uh, and so those go through, but we can't just rely, we can't just take a piece of equipment and rely on it. And so most states have what's called logic and accuracy. I think it's 96% of states do that, where in a public meeting, they actually test this equipment using sample ballots uh, to verify and make sure that the equipment counts, it captures the votes properly, and it, it tabulates and summarizes them properly, and that's done in an open meeting. Um, and then most states have some sort of post-election process as well. Um, and this is way, a way, and in between that, you have physical and logical security around the equipment itself, you know, 
no access by unauthorized individuals. Um, and uh, in our county, we've started doing what's called a hash audit, which is basically comparing the digital fingerprint of the system, hardware and software, with the digital fingerprint at the time that the system was certified. And, and so if one single character of code is changed or one program is added or removed, that fingerprint's off. Uh, and so those are some of the things that we do to, to help make sure that the system hasn't, it, it functioned properly before, it functioned properly after, and it wasn't altered in between. And I know, I know Don, uh, other questions to ask you about what election officials are, are, are thinking about it nationally, but if I could follow up with one other piece that, that people are asking about, and that's the mail balloting process. And I know it's different in every state. Um, and so you can refer to Utah or, or, or general practice, but how do you tell people they should feel that the way they cast ballots by mail is secure, and if it isn't, uh, what's being sent in isn't being sent in by somebody who isn't a voter, or what the what the checks are. How, how do you, how do you reassure voters that using that mail ballot process is a secure process? Well, the first thing I say is don't take my word for it, or and don't take your local election officials' word for it. Go in and see the process. Go in and talk to them. I haven't met a, a local election official yet who wouldn't jump up and down to have somebody come in and, and show them their process. Um, and it comes back to multiple layers of controls. And you'll find they have different flavors in different states. But I know in Utah, we have a set of uh, controls in place to make sure that the voter gets the correct ballot and that it's very difficult for someone other than that voter to return it. It's not impossible. No election system is foolproof. There's there's always opportunity for fraud, and our goal is to make it as difficult as possible for someone to do that, and uh, and to detect it without you know spending millions of dollars in, in and clamping down and and taking away people's rights as well. But uh, the the key thing is go in and observe the process, and I think you'd be really pleasantly surprised in every state when you go and look at their process and their by mail absentee kind of process um, you'd be surprised at the levels of controls and the the minute detail that is in place to help make sure that a voter can vote only once and that only valid votes are counted just following up on that you know we talked a little bit about the front end of those controls the uh, testing and certification process could you talk a little bit about on the post-election controls? Um, we, we heard at a hearing today uh, at the EAC, we talked a lot about audits and the number of states that are conducting that. Tell us about audits going on across the country, perhaps in Utah and other states that, that show and reflect you know, how we can control that as well. You bet. In addition to being an election nerd, I'm a CPA, so audits make my heart sing. I just love, <laughs> love it. Um, uh, auditing, risk and audit is crucial. Um, you know, taking a risk-based approach, that's crucial when it comes to elections. Um, and uh, audits, the important thing is they should either be done by an independent party or done in, in full view of the public. And that's what, uh, in, in Utah, our post-election audits, they have to include uh, mem members from the Board of Canvas, and they have to be publicly noticed. And, and it's really, that's a great way to help ensure that objectivity and that independence when you're looking at it from an audit perspective. Um, for Utah, we select a, a randomized sample of precincts, or of, of batches, rather. And so it's not a perfect random sample of all ballots counted, but th what we're testing is to make sure that the machines accurately comp um, collect, uh, convert, 
paper ballots into digital and then tabulate that properly. So we we uh, take a random sample in Utah. The sample size is 1% or 1,000 ballots, whichever is um, um, greater. You can't exceed 1,000. And if you look at from sampling size and statistical uh, samples, that's a, a pretty substantial sample size to come up with a good feel for the, what the population's characteristics uh, are. Are these done after every election? Correct. Yeah. And we actually do them before we certify, because if we were to find a problem, we would want to know that beforehand. Uh, Yeah. And so I was shocked. You know, we have a survey that we provide to the Congress of all local election officials. It's called the Eve Survey, that most states do audits across the country, and that they're actually very widespread. Now, there can be more on different processes, but... Is that has been has that been your experience in, in dealing with other officials? Yes, yeah, uh, just about everybody I know um, from across the country performs some kind of audit. Some may be a little more formal, some may be independent. Some, like a risk limiting audit, may be more statistically based, uh, where it's a, full, a true random sample of actual ballots. Mm-hmm. Um, and others may be more uh, kind of functional or procedural based like ours. You make the sample of batches, you ought everything within, within that batch to verify that the equipment's properly functioning. But yeah, it's, it's widespread. Auditing is uh, integral to the elections administration process. So I want to ask you a little bit, um, you know, elections are run and administered at the local level. It's really... You know, it's sort of federalism in place. It's like mega federalism, right? <laughs> uh, and so the, the role of the federal government is sort of minimal. But from your vantage point, what is the proper mix of state, local, and federal funding? I mean, most of it's going to be local funding. See, but we we're going to get the money question. The somehow. money yeah. question. The money question is here. You know, what is the role of the federal government in funding, and why is it needed? And why, you know, is it needed, and why? It's a good question, and it's a challenging question because there's no such thing as a federal election, really. When you look at it, there's 10,000 small elections of federal races. And uh, so it's it's really a challenge because you want that concept of federalism. It's a, it's a foundation of our republic. But at the same time, when locals are doing work on behalf of the federal government, you would hope that there would be some uh, compensation – for, for, from the federal government to help bolster that and make sure that it meets all the standards that the federal government has placed on the locals. Um, but that it's it's really a challenge. So I, I think the bulk of funding really should stay and come from the local or the state level. Uh, I think that uh, allows for the flexibility. But at the same time, I do think that there should be some federal funding. Now, there have been some grant programs, which is great. But really, the best thing is consistent and predictable funding that election officials can count on because a grant comes but a grant comes it can take sometimes a year and a half or two years to go through the RFP process and to really vet how you want to spend that money and sometimes the, the funding comes right before an election and then people say why haven't you spent your money we gave you well we were careful we wanted we want to spend it properly we want to spend it on long-range things um, so boy if we could if there's some way that we could get consistent um, and predictable it doesn't even have to be a massive amount if there's some way that we can get that funding from the federal government without the strings that come so I'm kind of begging and choosing at the same time (laughs) um, without the strings because each state has different needs different requirements different laws and so if the feds come in and say 
here are the requirements, that broad bro- brush is is going to hurt some states um, inadvertently or unintentionally, but uh, it'll be a problem. Now, uh, we've been talking about public funding, federal, state, local funding, and there are great needs for running elections. But of course, we had a, a, a large amount of, a large for, for us at least, a large amount of private funding in the last election, and that's become controversial. Uh, some states are are saying they're not, they don't want that again. What, what's your thoughts on private funding of elections, and where, if that has a role, or what we should do about it? Um, I I don't think private funding should. I don't think elections should be funded by private. Having said that, in 2020, uh, election administrators were scrambling and panicking and wondering how on earth we're going to be able to pay for the additional requirements that that we were needing to do uh, need to have because of the pandemic uh, and some private donors came came forward some prominent ones both uh, both uh, that that leaned left and leaned right and they provided substantial relief to local election officials and state election officials and it was tremendous it was life-saving for some of these jurisdictions um now, in my county, we're, uh, we didn't take any because we were fortunate that we were in a position that we were okay. Um, I can't imagine a local administrator um, taking money in that kind of situation and then allowing that to influence them in their administration. You know, election officials are wildly impartial. We, we care so much about getting it done and getting it done right. And we don't have the appetite nor the time, frankly, to try to mess with stuff and try to tilt the tilt the scales and that that really goes against our nature um, we want to be so objective and we're so careful um, now of course you can have a bad egg if you got 10,000 jurisdictions there's always uh, a range of good and bad eggs um, and so uh, you know it's definitely not perfect but um, it, but the other the, the key thing too is the is the appearance you want to make sure that you don't you know, we know that we're objective, but we want the public to be extra confident. And so for that reason, private money is kind of a challenge. But that means someone else is going to have to cough it up, uh, whether that's state, local, or, or federal. I wanted to go back just real quick. I think we have time for a couple uh, a, a question that I have. Uh, I want to go to the signature comparison. Um, obviously, that's I believe that's how you confirm, um, you know, the absentee or mail ballot in Utah. But there is... There's bipartisan support for that as a verification, but there's also bipartisan sort of opposition or seeking new ways to confirm. What are your thoughts on that? Why why does signature comparison work in Utah? How can it be improved? And how do you feel about it when there's sometimes bipartisan criticism of that? And yeah. that kind of concerns me at times because then we have to start thinking of the next model. Right. Uh, and that's an excellent question. And it's, again, it's not the perfect... It's not the perfect model. I'll go back to the multiple layers of controls because um, quite often we think, well, the signature comparison is the only control that lets me know that it's that voter, but there are other controls. One is physical custody of the ballot. Um, I, If I'm going to be a bad actor, I need to know that person's signature, not only know their signature, but I have to have access to that ballot without them figuring it out. Um, and, and that's a challenge. That's not something that can be done on a, on a broad scale. So... Um, Signature comparison works in Utah really well because we have controls on the outside of the envelope that um, a unique control number that's not known to the public uh, that can't be duplicated uh, and it has to be exactly linked to that um, voter and it's not generated until right before the election. 
So you'd have to have access uh, to, to the physical ballot, or if you were going to replicate to try to copy it, you'd have to know that number, which I, I just don't know how that's possible. Um, and then um, without the voting on knowing that their ballot is missing, sometimes if they, you know, when they, if it's missing, they would likely call our office and say, hey, I don't know where this is, and we can very quickly spoil that. And then lastly is, is the comparison itself. We have training that we've received from signature forensics experts, uh, and it's not a perfect science. It's not exact. But we go through three levels of review. We have a system, a computer system that helps us with that, but we have two additional levels of review that go through, and we compare up to five different signatures. We look at handwriting samples um, uh, on other documents that the voter might have, maybe a voter registration form or something like that. Um, and it, and in the end, if we're going to say no, this signature doesn't match, as we always reach out to the voter. Uh, and so that's that's another way to make sure. Are there better ways? Sure, a retinal scan or DNA would would be perfect. Um, but as Americans, I don't think we would want that. I wouldn't. No, but my my concern is if, if somebody challenges in court, for example, and a judge throws out the system, um, mm-hmm. what as a community are we prepared for? What might be required in the next decade you know what do we do in the case that you know a court decides that you know you're not doing a good enough job and and we're going to get rid of that system yeah it has happened before yeah and it it really is a challenge and you have to come up with a a good multi-layer solution so for example uh, i have easier access to my wife's driver's license number than I do to her signature. I could I could get that or her social security number a lot easier than I could forge her signature. But there are some people who could do the opposite. And so we would be creative. We'd figure out a way, uh, and we have in the past, that if, if a system is viewed as not, uh, you know, if that process is deemed, you know, not legal or not adequate, we'll figure out another way. And, and it could be a, a measure or a, a mix of what you know and what you have or, uh, you know, any kind of authentication um, but election administrators are pretty creative, and I, I'm sure that uh, if that's found to be limited and, and inadequate, we'd find a good good solution. I think we have probably time for a couple more substantive questions before we hear a little bit about your personal experience in elections. Uh, one I think that is on people's minds is that um, I bet you your job is much more public today than when you first started, when you were first elected in 2010. People know more about it. They know who their elections officials are, and sometimes there are some worries of, of people being uh, too forward or threats to election officials. And I guess I, I also want to put in the mix, people are eager to to observe elections. And observation is a very important part of our elections. We have you know bipartisan teams looking at things, people being able to see that the process works. How do you tell people... Um, the proper role of observation, transparency, the voter getting to know, but also think about the concerns of what election officials are facing, a lot of criticism and, and, and perhaps sometimes over the line criticism uh, leading to violence. What, what's the climate out there and what do you do about it? Um, election officials love observation. We would love to have people watch. The key thing is to have them watch and not disrupt. Um, when an election observer is chanting, shouting, uh, you know, taking flash photos, uh, that that's challenging for the election official to, to stay focused. Uh, we've had some where the election observer is right over our shoulder, breathing on our neck, um, and that's distracting. And the last thing you want when you're verifying signatures or, or doing reconciliations is is a distraction. So there's kind of a fine balance, and we, we want to make sure that the election officials feel safe. 
uh, and that they're not distracted. But we also want to make sure that they can't hide stuff we won't, because that's no good either. Uh, you've got to have some transparency, uh, especially in, in something as important and, and secret as elections. So that's crucial. Uh, it, it, and it really depends. In Utah, they can't get closer than six feet to, uh, they have to stay at least six feet away from the process. And if they can't see what's on the screen, we have to project it on a big screen. And, and that's a pretty good compromise. I think that, that has worked well for us. It does make some of our election officials nervous. We've received threats in my office, and uh, my neighboring counties have received some very specific uh, aggressive threats. And it, it's scary when you just want to do your job and you just want to serve the public, and when a very, very small group of people make it so that your staff is nervous to come to work. Um, so there, there's no perfect answer, but it's that fine line of transparency versus you know letting the letting the administrators do their work. And I think the key thing is, if people have concerns, come and ask, but ask the right people. I know when I give when I have observers, I tend to stay with them and say, if you have questions, don't ask the workers, ask me, because they're doing the important stuff. I'm I'm here to help walk you through and answer questions. One of the questions I had for you, Ricky, is, you know, we talked a little bit about how we set standards uh, and then we test in accredited labs, voting systems. One of the one of the new initiatives um, is testing and setting standards for electronic poll books and other systems that may have access to the Internet and sort of need that extra testing and protection, but don't currently have that. What are your thoughts about that and the best way forward uh, in the testing of non-voting systems? I really like the direction that the EAC is going because, yes, the, the tabulation systems and vote capturing systems are crucial. I mean, that's really the focal point of, of uh, aggregating, tabulating um, uh, the votes. But uh, on the area of voter registration and on the area of making sure that uh, every legal voter gets a ballot and they only get one and that it's you know hard to cheat, that's far, that goes far beyond the tabulation system. So I love the EAC's approach to take a look at these other systems, the e-poll books, uh, electronic poll books, and other non-election you know, night reporting. All of those are integral into voter confidence as well as the integrity of the election. So I think... I think that program is fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to see what kind of standards uh, come forward because um, that approach to me really will add integrity and confidence to the process. So we want to wrap up with a couple of questions about your personal experience elections. First, how did you get into the elections? What's your story? And if you were to look back and talk to your pre-election self, what would have been the, the biggest uh, misapprehension that, that uh, Ricky Hatch pre-election would have that he knows today? Uh, well, I, uh, I got my degree in accounting. I worked for a big accounting firm in Los Angeles and then overseas for a year or so. Um, but I was always fascinated with elections. I, in 2000, I was in Germany and uh, cast my overseas ballot and... Uh, uh, it was uh, it was fascinating for me to watch from afar and to hear how others um, interacted, and so I've always loved finance and accounting, and I've always been passionate about elections. Um, in 2002, I decided, hey, I need to do more than just vote, and so I went to my local city. I got involved as a planning commissioner, which I didn't even know what that was. Went to the local caucus. They said you should you should be a precinct chair, and I said, what does that do? And um, 
just got involved and I realized the people involved, especially at the local level, were just good people. We may not always agree, but they're good people. And I just, I continued to get involved until someone said, you should run for clerk auditor. And I said, what, what does that do? They say they handle money and voting. And I said, you can get paid to do that. <laughs> and uh, that's when I decided to run uh, for election. That was in 2010. And uh, absolutely loved it. It's, it's a wonderful fusion of, of my passions and my, and my background. If I could uh, talk to now to what, uh, what I was in 2011, um, I would say, you don't know everything. Because <laughs> I came in a little bit thinking I was pretty hot stuff uh, from a constitutional understanding and, and from good governance standing. And I quickly realized it is not as clear as I, as my theoretical mind thought. And I thought, boy, I should, I should have asked more questions. I should have postponed judgments and, um, and really dug to get more information before I spouted off my perfect intellectual theory. <laughs> And one last question. We have a, a big country with many, many voters and all sorts of different processes. And I'm sure in your experience, you have seen some funny or unusual events. What's the what's the most unusual or funniest story you can tell us about uh, your election experience? Um, well, my, my absolute favorite part of election administration is what's called adjudication. And that's when there's a mark on the ballot that the machine can't figure out or, or that there's a write-in. And so I... Uh, oversee that process where teams of um, election officials review and try to identify what the voters intent is. But uh, so when it comes to write-ins, I remember, I think it was the 2012 presidential. Uh, and it was kind of fun because you, you'd have a batch of ballots that you'd have to count to tally the write-ins. And so I did, I did a very informal, it wasn't illegal at the time. Now it's illegal to do some kind of informal tally, but you know, out of 80,000 ballots, I was looking at 200 or so. But I did an informal tally of the write-ins. Who would win if it was a write-in candidate for president in 2012? Now, I'm from Utah, and so the there was a tie, and the leading candidate was Gordon B. Hinckley, who was a prophet. Um, the, the Mormons revere, uh, revere, we have a prophet in our church, and um, and so he was the leading prophet, but tied with him was Satan. <laughs> and uh, I thought that was pretty funny to ha have a tie between the write-ins. <laughs> you mean the Morning Star Angel? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, Ricky Hatch, uh, thank you for joining us on The Voting Booth. My pleasure. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you for listening to The Voting Booth, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jay Hung Lee and hosted by John Fortier and Don Palmer. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to The Voting Booth wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and tune in next time.